CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes. She was the first in the world to study giraffes in the wild. Anne Innes Dag is a trailblazing Canadian zoologist who worked in the field with giraffes before Jane Goodall did the same with chimpanzees. And yet for half a century, she has lived in relative obscurity until now, in part because of a new film called The Woman Who Loves Giraffes. Dan Riskin has her remarkable story. They're some of the most mysterious, almost alien-looking creatures on the planet. But not much was known about them until this Canadian came along. It doesn't look like any other animal in the whole world. And not much was known about her until this film came along. Anne Innesdag is the world's first giraffologist, someone who studies only these curious animals. In her early 20s, Anne pioneered their study. In fact, she was the first Western scientist to study the behavior of any African animal in the wild. 50 years ago, that was unheard of. Returning to Canada, she took on the traditional world of academics. At a time when female professors were incredibly rare, Anne pushed the boundaries, the ripple effects of which are still being felt today. But all her groundbreaking efforts have gone virtually unnoticed for the past five decades. Now, at age 83, Anne is getting the recognition, accolades, and awards that could have changed her life. It all sparked when Anne saw her first giraffe when she was only three years old. I saw some in the giraffe in the Chicago Zoo. It was very tall and I was very small and I remember thinking, this is beautiful, and it went on from there. It went on to be a lifelong curiosity of these bizarre-looking animals. I um, just had it at the back of my mind, and then I would be looking at birds and looking at muskrats and, and uh, any other little animal I could. So then I took biology at the University of Toronto, and then that helped. But I always knew I wanted to do giraffe. At 20 years old and a fresh graduate, those unanswered questions still lingered in Anne's head. So she took a huge risk and went to answer them on her own. South Africa in the 1950s was tumultuous. Under apartheid rule, the country was tense and racially charged. But that's where the giraffe were. So that's where Anne went too, solo. Why do you think your mother let you go when, for a lot of people, that would just be too scary to have your, your daughter go do something like yeah. that? I thought about that a lot, and, and um, I think it might have been she was married at, uh, out of university and she never had a chance to do the things she wanted to do. And I think she must have looked up for me and said, well, why don't I let her go? And I did. <laughs> at that time, finding a place that would accept a young female scientist wasn't easy and got many rejections. Undeterred, she started using her first initial instead to disguise her female name, 
Finally, a farm in South Africa agreed to let her visit. Sort of. They thought they were inviting a male student. Getting to Africa at that time meant a nearly 60-day voyage by sea. And during the first month, Anne got disappointing news that might have stopped others from continuing on. I got in touch with the man I was supposed to be visiting, and he said, no, well, you can't come because I didn't realize you were a girl. I should have been a boy. <laughs> but anyway, I thought I'd go on anyway and, and go to the place that I knew might help me. This is what I did, which is to take another ship down to Cape Town. Something she'd been dreaming of for more than two decades. This is beautiful. I think this is magnificent. Anne finally arrived in the land of giraffe. It was a childhood dream come true and a biology student's chance of a lifetime. Anne immersed herself in it. 14 hours a day, every day for six months, she hunkered down in her little mobile observatory, something no scientist had ever done here before. Furiously scribbling down field notes, not just on how they mated, but what these massive animals ate and how their groups were structured. When Anne later returned to Canada, all those notes helped her earn her doctorate in how animals move. And when they run, it almost looks like slow motion. Oh, well, isn't it beautiful? I went and looked at the most recent papers on locomotion in these animals, and you're, the, you're in the first paragraph. I mean, your work is still <laughs> the standard that everything oh, comes from. <laughs> there had been no books answering the giraffe questions Anne had when she was a little girl. So she wrote one. 45 years later, Anne's book is still considered required reading for anyone working with or studying giraffe today, including Jason Poudelaw, a giraffe keeper at the Toronto Zoo. To me, Anne was uh, like a mythological creature. She was just this amazing person who wrote this book. And in 2009, I was at a giraffe conference in Phoenix, and Anne was there. <laughs> and it was just so crazy, like, you know, like I putting two and two together that like, oh, okay, this is Anne Dag. <laughs> you know, this is her. And then when she turned to talk to me, I was just like, I don't know, speechless. And I'd already done my presentation and she was, oh, I was so nervous to talk to you. I didn't think you would want to talk to, to and it was just, I mean, it's textbook Anne when you get to know her, but it's just insane that like the, the person who started it all and is still at the forefront of giraffe science, you know, is that humble. Oh, could he come over? Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Their first meeting turned into a lasting friendship. They bonded not only over their mutual love for these animals, but the hope of saving them from extinction. And so the Maasai giraffe that are here, what are the numbers like for those in the wild? So the Maasai giraffe, uh, unfortunately, is endangered in the wild. So they're about 35,000 and decreasing, I believe. We still haven't figured out uh, the solution to save this animal. In the meantime, we have found ways to increase their populations in captivity and those efforts are going well. There are now about 2,000 giraffe in captivity, with numbers increasing every year, including these two baby boys born last year in Australia. But again, it's just like a safety net. This is nobody's 
dream or first choice for how to conserve the species. We should be able to protect the land and let these guys do what, uh, what they do best. But what happens is when we are complacent and we let them get down to a number like say the northern white rhinos, now artificial reproductive techniques is the only chance we have to bring these guys back. Theirs is a fate Jason fears for giraffe too. The last two female northern white rhino on the planet are under 24-hour armed protection. Poaching for body parts and habitat loss have pushed this species to the extreme brink of extinction. A century ago, there were hundreds of thousands of them. Two years ago, the last male northern white rhino in the world died. Now, artificial reproductive techniques are keeping hope for these animals alive. And in a Florida zoo, a baby named Kendi was born just a few months ago. The, the importance is all on genetic conservation because at the day that we need to repatriate these animals back to the wild, which may seem crazy and far-fetched if you think of a giraffe. In what could be seen as a precursor to repatriating giraffe, large animals bred in places like zoos are now being released back into the wild. There's been a Herculean effort, the biggest mammals to have gone extinct in the wild, then brought back, moved across the world to the place they belong, in One, nature. Two, three, Captive breeding programs released the scimitar horned oryx back to their native country of Chad. A type of antelope, their antlers were peddled as unicorn horns in medieval times which started the downfall of entire populations. But now, with calves being born there in the wild, it's a huge success story. At the Toronto Zoo, there is a little bit of hope. This Maasai giraffe was born here last June, and her name, Amani Innes Dag. Now, the Toronto Zoo has a baby giraffe and it's named after you. How does that make you feel? Very, very, very happy. <laughs> I'm a mother again. <laughs> there couldn't be anything better than that. <laughs> Coming up. I want women to be treated equally with men. The fight for recognition in her field. Do you believe that you were denied tenure because you're a woman? Oh, yes. When W5 continues. South Africa is to conserve giraffe. With numbers rapidly declining, the race to save these extraordinary creatures now includes high-tech head-mounted collars. Seven and six. Is a hoop, is a hoop. Yes. 31 degrees. We have collars on animals within the same herd and in different herds. It's to see how, how often do the individuals get to each other, link up with, with each other. 50 years ago, there were about 40% more giraffe in Africa. And young Canadian Anne Innes Dagg was the first Western scientist to study them in the wild. Now in her 80s, the woman who pioneered giraffe study has returned to the land she loves and caught up with one of the youngest giraffe scientists in the field, 
François Deacon. We can forget about saving giraffe if we don't protect the habitat they live in. Uh, exactly. It's all to keep an eye on where the tallest animal on earth likes to live. Anne literally wrote the book on giraffe. In it, she explores everything about this bizarre looking creature. From the odd bumps on their heads, often used as weapons in fights between males, they're not technically horns at all, but projections of bone. To how they move. Not as easy as it looks considering their long spindly legs and high center of gravity. In her early research, Anne raised questions that only now scientists are starting to figure out. Like drinking. How do giraffe get water up that long neck without passing out? Science still doesn't have a clear answer, but Anne started the dialogue. It makes her part of a small group of women who dedicated their lives to pushing the boundaries for science, studying their subjects in their natural habitats alone. That group of pioneers later included another Canadian, world-renowned orangutan expert, Barute Galdicus. I mean, Anne was way ahead of her time. Women were not expected to do these things. In 1971, Berute immersed herself in the orangutan population of Indonesian Borneo. It was a few years after Anne had set foot in Africa, but very much in her footsteps, following a passion for her favorite animal. Orangutans are just like us. They're 97% us, and, uh, you know, if they go, then uh, we've lost another being that was it's our kin. When Barute returned to Canada, she also felt a tie to what Anne had experienced. I was in an anthropology department. It had 30 faculty in the mid-60s, 30. And of those 30, there wasn't one single woman. They were all men because the women were gone. And part of the reason the women were eliminated was discouragement, lack of mentorship, lack of grants. It was what two of the most famous primate researchers had faced before her as well. Jane Goodall is known the world over as the woman who studied chimpanzees in the wild. Diane Fossey is synonymous with mountain gorillas after studying them in Rwanda's dense forests. But it's striking that the first people to do that, yourself, Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, you have something in common, you're all women. And yeah. so why is it that women were the ones to take that step? It's hard to say. I guess men thought it would be below them because we weren't getting money for it. All of us had to beg and plead and, you know, to try and get more money to carry on. But Anne was the first. She did all that before Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey. And yet, she's lived in relative obscurity, likely, because of one barrier, even Anne couldn't break through. Denied tenure at a Canadian university because she was a woman. And I taught at three universities, and at each one they thought of a reason, no matter what I did, how many books I wrote. I had 60 um, articles written, and a guy that had written, I think 15, got the um, job. It, it was just, it was sickening. Do you believe that you were denied tenure because you're a woman? Oh, yes. 
I mean, I had more books and more articles than most, uh, most of the f people in, in universities. I'd been working hard on my whole life. And that doesn't seem to mean anything if, if I was a woman. I mean, it's so bizarre. The University of Guelph's vice president reached out to Anne just last year, writing, I extend an overdue apology for the ways in which you and other women were treated by the institution. But it wasn't just that institution. It was a hallmark of the time. The University of Waterloo said uh, they had a policy that they don't hire married women yeah. as academics. And they did say that. There were six of us that graduated with PhDs about the same time. And all of us wanted to be professors. Why not, you know? This is really what we loved. And all of them, all of us were told, you know, no, no, wouldn't happen. So Anne, who had made historic strides in the field, was now relegated to part-time work. She scraped together money to continue writing about giraffe in her own time instead of sharing her wealth of information with the next generation, including Jason Poudelong, giraffe expert at the Toronto Zoo and Guelph University graduate. I mean, you went to the University of Guelph, and yep. in another reality, she would have gotten tenure there, yep. and she would have been one of your profs. 100%, yeah. So what did you miss out on because of her not being tenured there. So if you can just think of the years lost of inspiring all these different people and then who they in turn inspire, it's just immeasurable. But has anything really changed since then? Megan Fredrickson is looking for that answer. The University of Toronto professor's main research focuses on some of the world's smallest animals. No ants in this one, must be too late in the year. So your main research is on biology, but yep. you've got this sort of side passion looking at inequality in the sciences in Canada. There's just a, a ton of data out there online that then I can go in and I can scrape from various websites and analyze in order to determine how women and men compare. Megan has compiled information on salary, publications, and grant money received for the past several years. So is this still something that's happening today where a, a female professor who gets hired this year is making less money than a male professor who gets hired this year? Yes, there's still a few thousand dollars to several thousand dollars to even tens of thousands of dollars difference between the salaries of men and women. The current pandemic has only highlighted this issue and not just on pay scale. The main measure by which we judge how well a scientist is doing is by how much they're publishing. Many people were asked to work from home without any, any place to send their children during the day. And I was interested in whether that was having a gendered effect on the productivity of scientists during the pandemic. And so I analyzed the data and found that indeed, as I had suspected, women were falling behind men, suggesting that women are really getting less research done than men during the pandemic. Although it's a bit early to get the full picture on that, it does underline that there are still shadows of the inequities that Anne faced. I want women to be treated equally with men. And if they are able to teach, if they can do that as well as men, why would you possibly say, well, let's have a category that won't be, we'll just ignore. I mean, it's just so bizarre. Anne is now getting recognition from outside of the giraffe research world, from honorary degrees to the creation of a research scholarship in her name. 
I guess I should be thrilled, but it doesn't really mean anything when I lost years and years and years of having a proper life that I should have had. She does credit this recent film on her work called The Woman Who Loves Giraffes for sparking all this attention. How did people react to you as a woman alone like that? Did that affect you at all? Uh, yeah, I never really thought about it, that me being a woman, it was strange. And they thought about it all the time, I think. <laughs> but you never let it stop you? Oh, no. Well, because I, I was thinking I was a person. And it's Anne's way of thinking that has inspired the next generation. Like Mariana Flores, who shares Anne's love of giraffe. I love their skin pattern and the way they fight or their purple tongues. We have so much to learn about them. She got a chance to meet her idol during a Canadian Association for Girls in Science Facebook chat. Um, giraffe's tongue are purple and they eat a lot of leaves so their tongue would be sticking out most of the time so it almost gets sunburned. Excellent. Yes. Okay. Yes. Very good. Very good. She never gave up in anything. She got denied in a lot of things, but that didn't stop her, and that's how she inspired me. Anne, however, really wants the focus to be not on her, but on her beloved giraffe. I, I think the legacy I want to leave is the giraffe will never be lost in Africa. What I've been working on so hard recently is just keeping them alive and so, so that we can have them in the world forever. Isn't that good? Smart. No, 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 chew that one and then you can have the final, oh, okay. <laughs> Anne and her daughter are now creating the Anne Innes Dag Foundation, which they both hope will protect those incredible creatures in the wild for decades to come. A list of the foundations that Anne supports is on our website, w5.ctvnews.ca. You've been listening to CTV's W5 with Avery Haynes.